What's up, y'all? This is Zach with Living Corporate, and you know what we're doing every single week. We're centering and amplifying black and brown folks at work. Happy Black History Month, y'all. Now, look, I know that we make black history every single day. Black history is American history. And at the same time, I'm thankful that we have a season, albeit a season in the wintertime and not, you know, closer in the summertime since we're like a summer people. I wish that we had August off instead. Or rather, look at me, I'm projecting because I'm saying I wish we had Black History Month off in August because I would take August off. And you would too. Don't play. You would take August off. Anyway, uh, I have to say I am so thankful and appreciative of the work um, of this team. You know, this Thursday, we have our first episode of The Break Room. The Break Room is a live web show focused on mental health, wellness and healing for black folks at work. I know, you know, we know that we suffer from racialized trauma, from being in white majority spaces as one of the onlys at work. And yet we've yet to really, I've seen, explore and dive into in a quote unquote official way with black health professionals, the reality of that. And so I'm excited about the break room because we're going to be doing that every single Thursday at 7 p.m. Central. So make sure you check your show notes and sign up, register, get familiar, get acquainted. We're going to have a good time. Now, something I really want folks to consider and keep in mind is that Black History Month is not a time to observe something that is past, but to examine systems that persist and create harm, right? When we think about folks like Hank Aaron, R.I.P., uh, we think about Martin Luther King, of course, Malcolm X, Cicely Tyson, rest in peace. They have stories of triumph in spite of white supremacy. That's what makes their stories incredible, because there were systems in place that actively sought to do them in, and they prevailed anyway. Right. And so we focus on oftentimes we focus on the individual act of that person, but we don't talk about what was done to them. And so my hope is for aspirational allies and and those who call themselves allies, who appoint themselves as allies, (laughs) that you would ask yourself, what are you doing to create less black superheroes? What are you doing? What systems are you engaging? How are you using your voice? What are you speaking truth to? To help create more equitable and just environments for black folks, for black people. Now, look, um, I'm really excited about our guest, Dr. Mark Anthony Neal. Dr. Mark Anthony Neal is a professor at Duke. He is incredible. And I wanted to bring him on to talk about the historicity of blackness in America and the historicity of white supremacy in America and get into what makes American history so unique and how all of these different systems are intertwined and continue to create disparities for black people. I'm really excited about Black History Month, y'all. We have a ton of content coming out. You would be remiss if you did not subscribe right share this content with your friends check out what we got cooking 
not just the single podcast. We got the leadership range. Like I said, we got the break room, we got the access point. We got the group chat. We have a lot of different stuff going on. So make sure that you're plugged in and you're in tune. You don't want to miss anything. Now, before we get to our conversation with Dr. Mark Anthony Neal, we're going to tap in with Tristan. See you in a minute. What's going on, Living Corporate? It's Tristan, and I want to thank you for tapping back in with me as I provide some tips and advice for professionals. This week, I want to have an honest conversation on expanding your view of what options are available to you. I've been having conversations with job seekers who tell me that their job is wearing them out and they're looking for something different. They wanted to change their job so badly that they hop on job boards and start looking for new positions. When I ask them to provide me with some job descriptions that have piqued their interest, they send me postings for the exact role they told me they wanted to leave. Have you ever been in that position? Don't worry, it's a common mistake and most of us aren't even aware that we're doing it. There are typically three reasons why job seekers fall down this pigeonhole. First, they are comfortable in those type of roles. Second, they think they've reached a pinnacle and believe those roles are the best they can do. And third, they aren't sure what other options are out there that may align with their skill sets. To me, all of those lead to one thing. They have a very narrow view of what they want to do and where it is possible to do it. If you find yourself scrolling through pages and pages of the same position that you said you wanted to get away from, work to expand your view. Become aware of what other career opportunities may be out there. Otherwise, you're going to be dealing with the same mess in a similar role, just at a different company. If you aren't sure where to start, seek out some help. You may want to start with a mentor or sponsor, but ultimately, I'd suggest trying to work with a career coach to help you think outside of the box and identify roles you didn't know existed but are perfect for the experience you have. Thanks for tapping in with me today. Don't forget, I'm now taking submissions from you all on career questions, issues, concerns, or advice you think may be helpful for others. So make sure to submit yours at bit.ly forward slash tap in Tristan. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash T-A-P-I-N-T-R-I-S-T-A-N. This tip was brought to you by Tristan of Layfield Resume Consulting. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Layfield Resume, or connect with me, Tristan Layfield, on LinkedIn. Dr. Mark Anthony Neal, how are you doing, sir? I'm good today. How are you doing? You know what? It's a loaded question that I asked you and you asking it back to me. I think I'm okay. I'm all right, right? <laughs> um, look, you know, recording this for Black History Month, and I've watched you from afar for a while. I'm thankful for the work that you do. And frankly, you're the first Black academic that we've had on specifically focused on Black culture, you know, especially within like the American context. I'm, I'd like to just kind of get your perspective on when we talk about the concept of Blackness in America, can you walk us through the historicity of of white supremacy in this country. You know, when you think about this country and even the concept of founding fathers, right, which links the nation to notions of masculinity. And of course, the founding fathers were all white and the United States, for all intents and purposes, was founded, you know, on the embodiment of white supremacy, right? The idea that wherever white is, white should represent might. And so that even as folks are leaving Europe to settle this place here, you know, in North America, 
you know, those notions of white supremacy and domination, you know, followed, you know, those white settlers here. White supremacy is a thing that allows you to not pay attention to the fact that there were, in fact, people of color, you know, who had built civilizations and who were, you know, really vibrant in those civilizations before you came. And, and white supremacy allows you to assume that, you know, you have something to teach them as opposed to them having something to teach you. And in many ways, you know, 200 years plus into the Republic, you know, white supremacy continues to be the dominant ideology of, of what we find in this country. There are ways and times in which, you know, it's been articulated in more nuanced ways. There were times in which, you know, the Republic needed the labor and time and genius of people of color and in particular black people in order to survive. Uh, but then you had a moment like the last four years with, with you know, the 45, in which, you know, all of the kind of nuances and symbolism of unity and diversity, you know, basically exploded to, and, and basically, you know, showed the rest of the world, you know, that white supremacy is in fact alive and thriving, you know, here in the United States and, and would be willing ultimately to destroy even the idea of the republic to maintain this visibility of, of white supremacy. You know, I had a friend of mine tell me that capitalism is white supremacy in action. I'm curious, like, what's your, what's your thoughts on, on that statement? Yeah, I think it's hard. It's very difficult to separate white supremacy from capitalism, from, uh, you know, even, you know, masculinity, you know, as systems of ideology that function at their best when they function together. Right. And, and, and when they function at their best, they also obviously function to the detriment of people of color and women and, and a range of other folks. Right. But I think there's no question of that. If you want to see the ways, various ways that white supremacy is actualized in the world, capitalism would be one example of that. And so you've made this mention now twice about masculinity. Now, is that in your mind interchangeable with patriarchy as a concept? And if, if so, why? And if not, why? You know, masculinity is a way that, that maleness is performed. Uh, patriarchy is a belief that power resides in these male forms, right? So those are two different things, but they're definitely part of the same conversation. So masculinity, you know, is the way that we walk in the world in our male bodies, right? And not just men who walk in those male bodies, right? They're examples of female masculinity. And masculinity in and of itself is not problematic. It becomes problematic when we see toxic performances of it, you know, which is exactly what Donald Trump was. And then when that toxic performativity of masculinity, you know, is writ large as a way that the world should function in the context of, of patriarchy, that's where you see those kind of dynamics. You know, already, you know, Joe Biden's inauguration speech is getting pushback and, and, and frustration around um, the language that he used. Um, there are senators and other politicians speaking out and, and claiming, that, you know, that they're offended uh, and um, and that it was a thinly veiled critique uh, against, uh, you know, the majority of Americans in this country, which is a, a telling statement on its own. But my question is, why do you believe white people are so uh, triggered by the term white supremacy? You think about the reaction to Nicole Hannah Jones 1619 project and you know I'm I'm curious as to your your thoughts on on 
on what that stems from? I think there are a few things that are taking place there. Um, I think unconscious bias is real. Um, the way in which, you know, many white folks actually don't perceive the power that they have. They don't necessarily understand the way that they take up space. And so in some ways, a critique of white supremacy that, that, that they're acting out of some sort of um, animus towards black and brown people, people of color, offends them on a personal level because personally they don't see themselves as being embodied in that because too often the symbols of white supremacy have been Donald Trump or a Bull Connor or the KKK and, and they don't see that in their everyday lives, right? But a lot of that has to do with the fact that, you know, if they were to look internally at themselves, their everyday lives, you know, they would be able to self-critically assess the ways in which you know, they do in fact have power, that they do in fact have privilege. You know, white privilege is one of those things that white folks hear and it's like, what the hell are you talking about? You know, I got to struggle to go to work every day and pay my bills and, and all those kinds of things. And, and in many ways, they're oblivious to the fact that their whiteness functions in a way that even in the quality of their life now, you know, they have more opportunities and chances than their black or brown peers Right, who in the absence of having whiteness as a privilege don't get to do the same kinds of things. And and this is where, you know, when we look broadly in terms of American society, the failure of mainstream corporate press, right, to hold folks accountable around racist language and racist symbolism. You think about how long it took, you know, many of the major newspapers to actually call some of the things that Donald Trump said as a lie. You know, you know, three years into his presidency, they were still terming it as mistruths and distortions instead of just saying a lie is a lie. You know, we've had those same conversations about racism and white supremacy. Most of America seemed to think that racism first occurred, you know, when George Floyd, you know, was, was being killed in Minneapolis of June of 1920, uh, of 2020, as, as if there hasn't literally been just in the last 15 years a continuous stream of examples being placed into the mainstream, you know, black, blacks and other folks about what the reality of police brutality is. So there's an unwillingness to admit what is happening in the world that we see first on the media level. And of course, when we get to the K through 12 experience and so many folks who go through school and not have a fundamental understanding of the history of the United States and how race functioned in that, let alone how, you know, just the three divisions of government function. <laughs> you know, you, you realize there there's failure on all on all sides. Help me understand something. So you know, I exist in the in the quote unquote corporate space, and my ongoing frustration, Doctor Neal, continues to be the inability, seemingly anyway, of white leaders to connect uh, white supremacist behaviors outside of the office to the uh, structural white supremacist behaviors inside of an office. Why do you think that is? I think one, one reason why that's the case is because it, it's a reflection and a critique of, of their leadership. Um, you mentioned corporate spaces. I mean, we, we'd like to believe still that higher education is some pristine 
you know, space in which people are committed to living a life of the mind, right? But but so many major universities are corporations into themselves and they function that way. Um, and there's always a way to believe that the university, for instance, or your corporation represents a bubble that is separate and distinct from the world that takes place, you know, outside of, of your corp, uh, outside of your corporation. And we know that's the case, not the case. Um, you know, I was just on a conversation talking about the lack of um, advancement opportunities for uh, people of color, women in color in particular, uh, in these kind of corporate spaces. Um, and one of the things that comes out is that, you know, you hear black women, for instance, all the time in these spaces talk about the fact that their supervisors never have conversations with them, but they're always talking to, you know, their white colleagues, right, who are similarly trained, have the same backgrounds, have the same kind of responsibilities. And, and we discount the fact that very often these are relationships that exist not just in the corporate space, not just in the university, but outside of those spaces, right? Simply because they're white, it creates a social condition for them to interact that people of color don't have access to. Um, you know, it's the old conversation about why do all the black kids sit at the lunch table? Well, that's one lunch table with a bunch of black kids, then 37 tables with, with, <laughs> where it's nothing but white kids. You know, right, what it right. is about whiteness, you know, that reproduces is that. And I think many often leadership takes a blind eye to those kind of critiques, particularly if they think that they personally embody a politics that's more progressive and diverse and, and open-minded, you know, and, and are unwilling really to wield the force that they need to wield within the institutions who, if they do believe that's who they are, to make sure that those who report to them are also in line with that kind of sensibility. So, you know, I asked you a question earlier in, in connecting um, these systems. You think about white supremacy and capitalism, masculinity, patriarchy. I, I'm curious, you know, as you think about some of the academic debates that have been had over the past four years regarding this concept of white supremacy, you know, and I want you to, because uh, Dr. Neil, you are, uh, you, you got the sauce. So you're going to, you can, edu you're going to clearly educate me is my impression um, in that Cornell West Coates uh, debate, right, um, of or the ideological difference, uh, seemed to be, and, and I'd like to get your perspective on this, my understanding was that part of West's critique of Coates was that um, West kind of like talked only about white supremacy in this limited uh, view without bringing in the scope of imperialism, capitalism and all these other and these other larger pieces that play and how they come together and then like again like the history of those things um and then Coates you know he he rebuffed that um with some examples of how we did talk about um you know international policies that were imperialistic and problematic and things of that nature I'm curious just because I, I I rarely I don't I don't know when I'm gonna ever talk to you again so I'm gonna shoot my shot and ask here is I'm curious to get your perspective on on that debate and point of and those different points of view and and where you think the dissonance is you know, so I, I know both Dr. West and, and Ta-Nehisi. I don't know them well. Um, probably know Dr. West, you know, better than Ta-Nehisi. And I think, you know, the it's important to, that we have a robust space for debate. Um, I think one of the things that we've lost in the social media moment, you know, where there's always the potential to cancel somebody is that, you know, we've lost the art of debate. You know, and that that resonates as much as it does in our national politics as it does in terms of, of black intellectuals having a conversation. Um, 
and I think part of what, you know, Dr. West was responding to, uh, regardless of the legitimacy or not of, of the critique of Ta-Nehisi's work, is the ways in which the mainstream white culture can anoint um, the Negro that matters at this particular point in time. Um, it, you know, for, for all the wonderfulness of Ta-Nehisi as a writer, as a thinker, um, you know, he is thinking through a intellectual tradition that has existed well before he has. Um, you can go back and read interviews of, with Cornell West in the 1990s, and he's saying essentially the same things, you know, 30 years ago, um, just in the context of 30 years ago, as opposed to what's happening in the contemporary moment. Um, and, and I think in many ways, Cornell West's critique was was a caution, right, to remind folks like Tanahasi, you know, I would offer the same caution now to say someone like, um, you know, Ibram Kendi, um, that the way that the larger society likes to isolate Black thinkers from Black intellectual traditions um, so that they emerge as like the thinker of the moment and the expert of the moment as if there isn't this larger trajectory of folks who've been thinking about this thing, right? And, and again, you know, a lot of this has to do with the way that people are trained, right? And, and as someone like Ta-Nehisi, um, who is in many ways self-trained and a voracious reader and, and comes to who he is, you know, through the, his own grit as a thinker, as a reader, as a writer, um, you know, for many folks who are scholars and academics, you know, we went through rigorous training, right, in which so much of our work is about acknowledging, even as we create original ideas, we do so in the context of acknowledging um, folks who have thought about these things prior to us, right? That's exactly what the training and the practice is. Um, and in many ways to elevate someone like Tanahasi, who has not had that kind of training, is to suggest the illegitimacy of the training. That's profound. Uh, I need to pause and absorb that for a second because there's something. So, Dr. Neal, it's interesting. And I'm connect, as you as I hear all these things, I'm connecting the dots in how because you, you said something about uh, the caution and how, you know, these um, institutions can kind of like handpick. And to be clear, I'm a huge Coates fan. I love all of yeah, his work. I am too. Uh, so, so this is but I'm speaking more now to like the culture of it and the patterns of, you know, being picked out and, and like you said, isolated and kind of like juxtaposed against. Um, I'm curious about your perspective on like the concept of community. You know, we talk all about, you know, we need to be united. We use a lot of language around. Yeah, we got to be united. We got to be on the same page. We got to we have to be um, we have to operate as one. What is your perspective on America on uh, Western concepts of individualism and its impact on uh, on the black community in America? You know, one of the, and not that there's ever a beauty to segregation, um, but one of the lasting legacies really of, of, you know, racial segregation in this country is that it forced black communities to build and invest in their own institutions um, because there was little opportunity to do otherwise. Um, and what that meant really prior to 1954 is that you guaranteed that black teachers would teach black kids. <laughs> you guaranteed, um, you know, that black people would go to black churches. So that's still much the same case. You know, black folks would seek out black legal assistance and black medical assistance. You know, the kinds of fractures that we've seen in terms of racism, for instance, in the medical profession and things of like that you know, look different doing segregation because you were going to black doctors, right? 
and and there was a way that whether or not you were a black elite or black middle class figure or the black working class, you tended to live in the same kind of proximity. So there was a shared fate. And that shared fate, I think, is something that, you know, Western thought and let's say American thought never fully understood because whiteness allowed folks to have the freedom of individuality, right? You can be who you are and not necessarily be a reflection of, of all white people. Um, you know, black people have never functioned in, in that kind of situation, right? It's always been the case that, you know, the visibility of one black person, good or bad, you know, reflects on the totality of the community. And, and we very often had to raise our children and, and think of our own careers in the context of whether or not we would make black people look bad. You know, um, I, I remember this running joke, you know, Chris Rock gave when he was doing his HBO series in the 1990s you know, where it's like a process of steps, you know, some black person does something and black folks walk up three flights of stairs and then something like OJ Hampton happens and they fall back five flights of steps. Hmm. Um, and to the credit of black of the black community, we feel, still very much see ourselves within the concept of a linked fate. I think we have to divorce the idea of a linked fate from superficial and symbolic unity. Um, what we have seen historically in terms of the black community uh, is that unity is a myth, but solidarity has been a strategy. Uh, and I'm much more concerned with the issues in which we can be in solidarity in terms of moving the community forward, particularly if there's a rich, robust debate getting to that solidarity than simply being unified for the sake of being unified. I mean, this is one of the tensions that we saw during the Obama presidency, right? You know, we get to hold, in many ways, you know, Joe Biden accountable around race in ways that we couldn't of Barack Obama because we felt that we had to unify with Barack Obama and not add to the critiques that he was getting, you know, from folks on both the left and the right who didn't look like him. Um, and I think ultimately, you know, that undermined our ability to really hold him accountable around issues of race. It is no surprise to me that Black Lives Matter emerges not in the context of, of a George Bush presidency or Bill Clinton presidency or George Bush presidency before that, but doing, you know, Barack Obama's presidency because there was a segment of the black community, young folks in particular, who were like, we can't go forward for another four years without holding questions of accountability on the black president the same way that we would never think twice, twice to hold, you know, his predecessor, you know, accountable. You made mention of unity and, um, and solidarity, uh, like from an intra community perspective, like within the black, um, the larger black diaspora, or at least at least here in America. I'm curious to get your point of view. You know, there continues to be work, and even you saw it in the inauguration. You had, um, except for Jimmy Carter, all the former, a lot, well, and Trump. You had, um, you had Bush, Clinton, and Obama all there on screen at the same time, talking about getting back to the business of America. Um, you had them talking about, uh, you know, coming together, unifying. Um, Biden's message, like a, a fairly centrist message around, I'm going to bring all these people together even while he says we're going to stamp out white supremacy. Um, and now there being this um, subtle demand or expectation that, um, that, that these fairly polar opposite sides, um, one side that doesn't really seek or respect the humanity of the other side, um, come together. And I'm curious about, like, from your perspective, as we think about just uh, the, the tradition of Black thought and Black thinkers and, and scholarship, 
what is the perspective of those who look at these situations before? Certainly, this, this is not the first time that marginalized communities have been pressured to, you know, give peace a chance and all come together. I'm curious to get your your thoughts on this on this 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 concept of uh, of unity in this moment. The United States, I think, has been most successful in its lifetime when its politics were left of center. Um, Social Security is left of center. Um, Aid to dependent children is left of center. Um, The Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, you know, they're all things that we would define as kind of left of center. Left of center politics in the United States, you know, allows, you know, as the saying goes, for, for all boats to float. And I think one of the things that's happened definitely over the last 12 years when we talk about political spectrum, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about, you know, the radical right, the far right. Um, We talk about the ways that the Republican Party has moved from a party that was right of center. You know, if you think about someone like, um, uh, you know, the former, the late senator from Arizona, as one example of this, or even someone like Mitt Romney, you know, who is right of center to a party that's now being defined by radical voices on the right. Um, and the fact that the mainstream media allowed Barack Obama to be defined as a leftist, um, when in many ways, you know, he is in that same centrist mode that um, that Joe Biden is, you know, it means that one of the things that has largely been invisible in our political conversations is the fact that there is still a legitimate and vibrant left, and more importantly, a black left. Um, and I think what we see in this moment is folks are wondering how to respond to this question of unity is a black left that has been pretty consistent now for 50 or 60 years about their concerns about this drive towards unity. Um, this was a critique of the Black Panther Party in the 1960s, right? It was the critique of, of the later stage of SNCC, when SNCC, SNCC became much more radicalized. It's, it's not surprising that we're hearing voices, right? You hear all throughout Twitter, you know, lamenting the number of Black folks who shed a tear, you know, because we get our first, you know, Black woman vice president and Donald Trump is out of the office. And, and I think the Black left is so important because it's a reminder to the mainstream, not just of Black America, but the mainstream of the American public, that the work is not done. Um, the left has been most successful, right? When I say that, you know, America's successes have largely been because of policies that are left of center, the pressure came from the left to move those policies, policies to the left of center. Um, and we have to maintain a space where the left of this country, the black left in particular, is still vigilant and vibrant and can offer critique to hold people accountable, right? You know, Bernie Sanders, you know, you know, everybody's laughing at the beams of Bernie Sanders, you know, sitting around with his overcoat on and his and his mittens, you know, at the inauguration. Um, and, and there are lots of critiques that could have been made about Bernie Sanders and his two campaigns around the invisibility of certain kind of race politics, right? But, you know, he's someone who represents the American left, the role of labor, right? And unions in our country that has largely disappeared, um, particularly in corporate spaces. Um, And so I think the fact that we're hearing these critiques and pushbacks against unity is actually a healthy aspect of, of our politics at this moment. 
so Dr. Neil, first of all, you know, it's been a pleasure. I'm, I, I said from the top off mic, it's an honor to have you here. I'm just thrilled that we were able to make this work. Let me ask you this last question. And before I, I let you go, as we think about Black History Month, but bigger than Black History Month, just this moment in Black history and um, these continued um, public statements of solidarity from uh, corporate ent entities, what advice would you have for them as it pertains to truly uh, creating just and equitable places in their offices and in their larger corporate communities? So many of these corporations have become really adept at what you know as virtual signaling. We're going to signal that these are our virtues of value around questions of diversity and black bodies and anti-racism. And, and those are important things. And they're responding to the kind of pressures that they're getting from social media and otherwise to hold their corporations accountable. Um, but very often those same, you know, corporations that are run a Martin Luther King Day commercial or, or sponsor, you know, uh, a museum, you know, uh, exhibition at, at a major museum, you go back to those corporations and you look at their corporate suites, right? You see what the leadership is. When they're making decisions about the corporation, look at the diversity of eyeballs to get a chance to look at it or the lack of diversity of eyeballs. Um, this is this particular moment where it just can't be about the symbolic um, articulation of your values. Those values have to run through your actual organizations at this point in time, right? Do you have a plan to make sure that those folks who are in middle management, who are people of color, who are Black Americans, have a way to think aspirationally about their opportunities at that particular corporation or get the kind of training in this one corporation that allows them to pursue those aspirations in other corporations? Do you have mentoring programs? And, and you don't have to create a mentoring program for black folks, just mentor black folks the same way that you've historically been mentoring white folks, right? Because you don't create you know, mentoring programs for the white folks in the organization. You just simply take them out to lunch or take them out for drinks or invite them over to the house with their families. You know, all these informal mentoring processes that have a fundamental impact on who you choose to elevate within their institution, you know, Black folks don't get those opportunities, right? You want to set up a half-hour lunch panel <laughs> and lecture Black folks about how they can do better and act better in order to be mentored within your organization. So there are just fundamental shifts that have to occur within the context of these corporations. Dr. Neal, God bless you, brother. I'm thankful for you, um, and, I, and I call you elder with love. Um, thank you for the work. Thank you for continuing the tradition of Black intellectualism and Black thought. Um, thank you for helping us connect the dots a bit as it pertains to um, the history and legacy of white supremacy, the veracity of it, and uh, ways that we need to continue if we want to create a more equitable and just world. I uh, will talk to you soon. I can see you're a friend of the show, but I hope I can have you back. Yes, not a problem. Thank you, Zach. All right. God bless. Peace. Take care. And we're back. Look, I appreciate you. If you listen to this, I appreciate you for whatever your motives are in listening to this, wherever you are, I appreciate you. I want to leave you with some words. I'm not even going to add no extra commentary to it. I'm going to read it and then we're going to get up out of here. This is from someone I deeply admire, Preston Mitchum, who wrote on the first day of Black History Month, the first. I've realized that many white people, companies and institutions don't know what it means to talk about black people outside of trauma. It is rarely centering black people at the center of our joy and celebration. Only death and rarely. 
Because to many, that is what blackness is, death. This is situational allyship, and it is harmful, as many forms of allyship often are. Don't perform centering us just to honor us during a prescriptive month. Honor us always, and not just when we are dying. We are more than death and dying. We are also full of life, and there is no world without us. This has been Zach with Living Corporate. I love y'all. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.